0: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbas of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up.
1: So glad you are with us on the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We've got your stool ready for you, and we have multiple good martinis. Beyond that, we're also brought to you today by the Bradley Foundation, Bradley Foundation is sponsoring the Conceived in Liberty, the Bradley Speaker Series. And you can find out a whole lot more at bradleyfdn.org slash liberty. A little bit more on that later in the podcast. Jim, let's get to good martini number one. And as we record this a little bit before noon Eastern time, uh, Bill Barr, the attorney general, is testifying before the House Judiciary Committee. The good martini is uh, a couple of important statements that he's made here, including this one. When a community turns on and pillories its own police, officers naturally become more risk averse and crime rates soar. Unfortunately, we are seeing that now in many of our major cities. This is a critical problem that exists apart from disagreements on other issues. The threat to black lives posed by crime on the streets is massively greater than any threat posed by police misconduct. The leading cause of death for young black males is homicide. Every year, approximately 7,500 black Americans are the victims of homicide, and the vast majority of them, around 90%, are killed by other blacks, mainly by gunfire. Each of those lives matter. And it is not just that crime snuffs out lives, crime snuffs out opportunity. Children cannot thrive in playgrounds and schools dominated by gangs and drug pushers. Businesses do not locate in unsafe neighborhoods. When the police are attacked, when they are defunded, when they are driven out of urban communities, it is black lives that will suffer most. From their absence, he also goes on to slam Democrats, essentially, and as well as cities for doing little to nothing to deal with the riots that are going on. He did spend a lot of time in the first part of his statement about how police need to be better when it comes to dealing with the black community. So it wasn't just the part that I read there, uh, Jim. The Democrats clearly have their knives out, based on Jerry Nadler's opening statement. The Republicans are ready to fight back, based on Jim Jordan's video of carnage in the streets, juxtaposed by the Democrats saying everything's peaceful. So what do you make of Bill Barr and the whole uh, process today?
0: Yeah, look, there is no doubt that if you go back to late May and the death of George Floyd, there was a really widespread, well beyond the Democratic base of the the base of the Democratic Party, um, frustration with police, concern about police, a a general, you know, uh, surprisingly wide consensus that there was unequal treatment in the eyes of the law. It is not late May anymore. It is now late July, and the narrative has changed. The the focus, of we saw enormous turnout for the George Floyd protests. And then, bit by bit, these protests, particularly in Seattle and particularly in Portland, stopped, you stopped hearing about George Floyd. You certainly didn't hear about Eric Garner or any other previous, you know. It suddenly turned into this effectively Um, neo-anarchist movement of just trying to tear down, destroy federal courthouses, and just this perpetual state of ongoing violence, that God help you if you're a business in uh, Portland, or you just live down there, and you just don't want to see the chaos of of a Lord of the Flies-like anarchic environment right outside your window. And as we mentioned, Mayors and state city officials who are simply afraid to stand up for law and order and to say no, you're not allowed to destroy this public property. You're not, you know, you know that doesn't belong to you. You're not allowed to destroy this. And so, look, this is this is a tailor-made situation for Barr. And I think the administration's hand is stronger now than it was a month ago, and certainly than it was two months ago, because now it's turned into like a lot of people who were completely on board with the George Floyd protests and the messages behind that are going to look at this and say, ah, you know, I'm not. I'm not here for anarchy. I'm not here for guys in black masks trying to, you know, throw bricks at cops and shooting off uh, fireworks and all these other things. I am not here for this perpetual state of ongoing violence in my streets. And I certainly am not on board for higher crime rates. And so, um, I don't know whether this will necessarily affect the presidential election, but th- this discussion about policing, this discussion about um, what should you know, happen in our cities, how are they being managed? I'm not sure this is working out. I think the bar position is a lot stronger now than it was probably about a month ago or six weeks ago or two months ago.
1: Jim, I know your specialty is not understanding why Democrats think the way they do, because sometimes it's pretty hard to figure out. But it's not that hard to say we want uh, police reform. We want justice for George Floyd, but we can't tolerate this wanton destruction in the streets and we're not ready to tear up the founding documents. It's not that hard to say. Why won't they do it? Well, look, up until
0: very, very recently, the polling for Joe Biden against Donald Trump looked great. Polling in the Senate races looked great. The odds of keeping the House looked terrific. Democrats were convinced they were winning. The problem was it was summer and the election is in November. So they had to figure out some way to maintain that state of enthusiasm. They had to figure out some way of maintaining that level of energy. Democrats have been here before. They were utterly convinced they were going to win in 2016. Um, there have been times where, you know, all of a sudden their base, you know, they, they're doing great, they're doing great. And after a while that, that level of enthusiasm and energy cannot be maintained and people who were really showing up for all the protests in the summer don't show up to vote in November. So I think the attitude of the Democrats is we got to keep the heat as high as possible, which by the way, I don't think is workable. I, th- I think it's the simple answer is, you know, calm things down and then reheat things as needed in November. But that's, uh, I think this is their philosophy, and I think besides the fact of this kind of, you know, psychological exhaustion that will kick in, um, there's also a factor of it means you need trying to maintain this crisis level, trying to maintain this, you know, DEFCON 1 status uh, and mentality eventually will wear people down and is, you know, pe- people can acclimate to anything. If you, know, if you don't believe me, look out your window at how people acclimated to the conditions of the pandemic. This idea that, you know, oh, we can't, we dare not denounce what's going on in Portland, we dare not say that the police need to be on the streets to stop crimes, um, indicates that they've been locked into this narrative of bad police and, and, you know, noble victim African-Americans. And they simply don't want to interpret to to encounter any fact or anything that could be contrary to that narrative.
1: They're betting on that people are going to be exhausted with who's in charge right now, not with what's happening in the streets right now. And we'll see if that actually pays off, but, Trying to figure this all out, trying to make sense of current events during what's happening right now can be very difficult, and that's where the Bradley Speaker Series can actually help you out here, because Conceived in Liberty is the Bradley Speaker Series. It's a new video series that offers meaningful perspectives through engaging 15-minute interviews. Really won't take up much of your time, and you'll be far more informed. Visit BradleyFDN.org Liberty to watch their most recent episode featuring British author and historian Andrew Roberts. The author of numerous award-winning books, including his most recent book, Churchill, Walking with Destiny, Mr. Roberts is a foremost expert on Winston Churchill. In this episode, he addresses Churchill's approach to governing during a crisis and how he evolved from statist to staunch advocate of the free market system. Andrew Roberts also shares his take on the destruction of historical monuments. So it's exactly what we were just talking about. That's Bradley with an L-E-Y at the end, F-D-N, dot.org/slash/liberty org slash liberty to watch the video. New episodes debut weekly, so come back often and subscribe to their YouTube channel to be notified whenever a new one is posted. That's bradleyfdn.org slash liberty. All right, Jim, let's keep talking about the presidential race as we go to our second good martini, and you talk about this in today's Morning Jolt. Uh, by all accounts, California Senator Kamala Harris is believed to be not only on the short list, but probably the the leader in the clubhouse at this point for the running mate for Joe Biden. But that assumption has hit perhaps a very significant snag because you'll of course remember that back at the CNN studio debate at the very beginning of the pandemic uh, against Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden first vowed officially to name a woman as his running mate. And then he followed that up a couple of months later with the bizarre choice of Chris Dodd, who's oh so sensitive to women in the Me Too mindset, uh, his record along with Ted Kennedy on that front is is uh, fairly well known in, in Washington. But anyway, he's the one interviewing all these candidates, and of course, as the George Floyd killing at the hands of police and everything else uh, fired up over the past couple of months, the assumption has now moved closer to well, it's going to be a black woman, which put even more focus on Harris. But Harris may have sunk her own ship here because apparently, according to a source who knows Chris Dodd, talking to Politico. Chris Dodd asked Kamala Harris about her attack on Joe Biden in that very first debate about how he was uh, opposed to integrated busing, and that little girl was her who was affected by that, and uh, it got her a brief jolt until Tulsi Gabbard crushed her at the second debate. And so Chris Dodd brings this up at uh, an interview with Harris, and she basically just says, ha, that's politics. Uh, no remorse whatsoever, which really took Dodd aback. And since he's going to be a big factor in deciding who is going to be the running mate, this could mean Harris has done herself some serious damage here, Jim, which can only be good for the rest of us.
0: Yeah. Uh, by the way, I mean, I suppose you could say this could be bad news in the sense that if you think, as I, as I do, Biden selecting Kamala Harris would make a bunch of Republicans who are really not pleased with the president, and really kind of irritated with the way he's handled the coronavirus, et cetera. The idea of Joe Biden either, you know, uh, stepping down as president or having health issues or, God forbid, passing away at some point in his, you know, in that first term, and Kamala Harris stepping in to uh, become president of the United States, I think, you know, strike fear into the hearts of everybody right of center and probably a decent number of centrists as well. So uh, I guess if you don't want Kamala Harris on the or if you want uh, Kamala Harris on the ticket because you think it'll improve. Trump's chances that uh, that might be bad news. But if if just for the overall state of the country, I want Kamala Harris as far away from uh, the Oval Office as possible. This is, I think, a very fascinating little anecdote. Look, uh, Biden could still pick uh, Harris. You know, Chris Dodd does not have the final say. It is worth noting that Chris Dodd and Joe Biden are good buddies and have been for a long time. And if Chris Dodd says, you know, you shouldn't pick her, I think she's not loyal to you. I think she's going to be out for her own agenda and out for herself during your entire presidency. You know, maybe that, I think that would weigh pretty heavily on Biden's mind. It probably wouldn't necessarily, like I said, wouldn't be the, the final veto. But, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, it's an issue everybody would see. And, oh, by the way, the Trump campaign would instantly go to town on this and be replaying that and all that stuff. So you're, you're you, as I just try to think about it, imagine being Kamala Harris. Imagine being in that situation where, uh, you know, you, you, your presidential campaign didn't turn out the way you wanted. You're kind of like Icarus. You flew really high and then you crashed fast. But everybody remembers that moment. You, you took it to Joe Biden and you, you know, really put him in an awkward spot. Uh, and then, of course, you know, Tulsi Gabbard did it to you about two, two debates later. Um, but, you know, this, this is something everybody remembers. And it's very clear Chris Dodd remembers. And I think if Chris Dodd's asking about it, there's a good chance Joe Biden remembers. Now, Harris has appeared with Biden and she's endorsed him. There's not a ton of overt bad blood between the two of them. But if you're Kamala Harris and Chris Dodd is asking about it, at the very minimum, you have to recognize Chris Dodd is not asking about it because he was a huge fan. <laughs> He's not asking about it because he thought it was awesome. That is your opportunity to, to address this moment that you probably want to clear the air about before you go ahead any further in this process. And there's you have a couple options. I, I listed in the jolt. You could say, yeah, you know, look, when I'm attacking somebody, I'm tough, I'm tenacious, I don't hold anything back. But I got to tell you – If I'm Biden's running mate, I'm going to attack all of his critics the same way. And maybe that would make Chris Dodd feel better. Or you could express some regret. You could say, you know, look, things got heated. I didn't mean to imply that Biden was racist. I love the guy. I admire him. I want him to be the next president. I'm sorry it ended up going that way. You know, maybe Harris doesn't feel that way at all, but that's the sort of thing that Chris Dodd wants to hear. Instead, she went with option C, which is, ha, oh, that's politics. And, and you know, in, in, in the eyes of Dodd, showed no remorse. Chris Dodd expected to show some remorse. And so is a life lesson for, for, for potential vice presidential choices and for everybody else in life. Sometimes you're going to have two things you want. Kamala Harris does not want to admit that she was wrong. Right? She wants to stand by what she said, and she wants to believe that everything she said during the campaign was accurate and fair and inbounds, and you know nobody. there's no fair objection to it. She also, I assume, wants to be Joe Biden's running mate. At that moment, you have to make a choice. You have to decide which one of these two you want more. And if you make the choice, I'm going to stand by what I said, and I'm not going to indicate any remorse or any regret, you can do that. But that hurts your chances of being Joe Biden's running mate. We'll, we'll see how things shake out. I think he's probably looking at a whole bunch of other candidates, and this probably won't be a decisive factor. But I think it's safe to say this probably didn't help her. And the fact that Chris Dodd is, go, is telling other people about it, and this anecdote got to Politico, says in something interesting, that says that clearly it's still sticking in, in Chris Dodd's craw. And this was, an, this was part of the audition process. And I think we can say, based on Dodd's reaction, she flunked. She did not do well. And it was one of those things where I think a lot of people in politics, a lot of people who think that they're good in politics, would at minimum have had the wherewithal to recognize Chris Dodd wants to see some remorse here. And she didn't give it to him. And that's her choice. But my guess is it's going to have consequences. And if you're not a fan of Kamala Harris, watching her step in it like that, you know, pretty darn good day.
1: That's yeah, it's very fun. Also, you mentioned in the jolt. uh, Karen Tumulty, columnist for The Washington Post, uh, sees a double standard here because uh, other campaigns from cycles past where uh, a previous rival was added to the ticket, there wasn't this uh, matter of being super apologetic or remorseful. Uh, Women apparently are supposed to be window dressing, demur and apologetic. Jim, that's, I guess, her take. But I don't think that George Bush in 1980, for example, was uh, thinking about ways to... uh, maintain his independence and still stick it to Reagan and stand by, I don't think he used voodoo economics anymore on the campaign trail at that point. Uh, I'm sure John Edwards didn't in 2000. Maybe Lyndon Johnson back in 60 would have been completely unapologetic with JFK. But for the most part, once you take on the job, you know your job is to back the other person no matter what they do, as Mike Pence has proven over and over again. Yeah, I mean, the, the look,
0: being vice we all know the anecdote, the vice presidency isn't worth a bucket of warm spit, et etc. So look, the vice presidency is in some cases what you make it, uh, what you make of it. But, but a chunk of it is is like, look, if you are the vice president, the, you know, obviously most people put their finances into a blind trust, and I remember back in the early days of Doonesbury, he made fun of George H.W. Bush by saying he was putting his manhood in a blind trust. ha <laughs> you know, But what it is is you have to put your ego. Into a blonde, into a into a safe deposit box. You have to put your um, belief in you, how terrific you are, uh, aside, and you have to basically, you know, uh, subjugate your ego for you know the the duration of the presidency until late in the presidency, uh, where you start doing your own presidential uh, ambitions. You you basically have to decide. Every, your your first thing when you wake up in the morning is how do I make the president look good. Which, by the way, you know, Joe Biden very explicitly says this is how he approached the job of the vice president. It certainly seems safe to assume uh, he would like to see the same thing in his running mate. And, you know, there's an interesting anecdote where Biden said that he, you know, people may remember at the Bin Laden raid, Biden said that he was uh, skeptical and doubtful and he wouldn't have had the guts to make that call. Biden, in subsequent interviews, indicated that he kind of exaggerated that—that that he had some doubts, but that he had basically—he felt like his job was to make the president look good and to make the president's decision, you know, which obviously was the right one, but just make him look like you know, not every. This was not an easy call. The president re- showed real courage by making the comment, yada yada yada, um, and it was kind of this interesting. Um, dynamic there and I don't know you know Biden might be just from a different era where you know you're expected to to jump on that grenade so to speak you're expected to look bad so that the president looks better and people may not you know a lot of people who've risen in politics are not in this because they're good at, at putting their ego aside quite the opposite and that is uh, that's you know where we are with this and I think Biden might be looking for a phenomenon
1: that just a lot of people, are not uh, eager to uh, accept there. All right, Jim, let's move to our crazy martini now. And you wrote about this, uh, but found it, of course in the New York Times. The New York Times is looking at ways that the coronavirus pandemic has affected, dramatically affected the lives of people in the greater New York area. And the part that you uh, zeroed in on was the fact that some people whose primary residence is in New York City or, or the close surrounding area around New York City, have been forced to tough it out at their summer house, out in the Hamptons. And because they've been out there so long, they've actually had to share space with their children. They've noticed things that need repair. Uh, They've spent more time there, so there's more wear and tear at the second house. I mean, they're really, really struggling. I'm sure that uh, this is something that's gonna really strike a chord with Americans all over the country uh, who have the same problem with their second house. I was going to say, if you listen
0: very, very carefully, uh, you can hear the world's tiniest violin being played. Um, but what's more, you know, they, they keep in mind, like, there's a... Uh, first of all, it's a hilarious article. I suggest you read it just, just for sheer comedic purposes. And you keep wondering if the the author of the piece was kind of in on it, was kind of recognized that this was these people... Um, are among the luckiest of the lucky. You know, look, sure, sure. You know, you're not in your regular home down in Manhattan and, and all that kind of stuff. And you probably paid a ton of money for that. But you've got a home in the Hamptons and the beaches in that far away. And you have a pool. By the way, these are you know, nice homes that are being you know, showcased in this. These people, and they, they just come across as being very self-absorbed. And you know, oh, woe is me. And and, you know. um, and that's kind of, you know, like, so it, it's funny in that sense. But I do think that there's also kind of this interesting illustration at work here. Uh, this did not run in the regular news section. This ran in the real estate section, right part of the Sunday New York Times. It's, it, it weighs a ton. It's got a whole bunch of this. And look, real estate section in addition to having a lot you know, why do newspapers run a real estate section? Because there's a lot of real estate companies that like to advertise in them, right? Both uh, both classified types and nice big glossy ads and, and you know full page ads when the, they're selling new condos and all that kind of stuff. It makes a lot of money. And the thing is, is that, you know, the, the, when you run this section, you generally don't want to run articles saying people who own big houses are horrible human beings, who are greedy and selfish and need to be, you know, overthrown from the heights of society, et cetera, et cetera. You leave that on the op-ed page for folks like Paul Krugman, you know, the, the impoverished Princeton professor that he is. <laughs> um, and that's this, this interesting dynamic in the New York Times in that it is very, very opposed to the mostly white, immensely wealthy Then those who are the richest 1%, except the richest 1% in many particularly in the New York City area, advertise in the New York Times and read the New York Times. And so you have this really fascinating uh, dynamic here in that this is a largely, this is not a piece that is, you know, at least overtly making fun of these people. And then you read the comment section on the New York Times website and people are spitting hot fury over this saying, oh my God, I can't believe these people think they have it hard. So many people are facing eviction. So many people can't afford their rent. How can they, blah, blah, blah. And it's just kind of very funny. And it's very, I think, illustrating uh, of this contradiction in the New York Times. And they do not, uh, have not yet figured
1: out a way to rectify this. And so they're just going to keep doing this and hope nobody notices. Wow. Wow. All right, Jim, exit question, follow-up on yesterday's final martini about the sports. Uh, Just found out today that one of the best defensive linemen for the Bears is uh, opting out of the season, and two of the top defensive players on the New England Patriots are not going to play this year, Donta Hightower and Patrick Chung. So, A, is the season going to happen, and B, if it does, do the Jets have a good shot now with not only those guys gone, but Brady and Gronk's long gone now and, and so forth? You know, Greg, all we need to
0: do is field a team and have 31 other NFL teams not able to do it, and we will end up winning the Super Bowl. So I'm already, I'm building the trophy case. It's looking great for us. There's that, uh, I mean, look, I would point out, though, I just don't know how much I I want to bet all of my chips on the immune system of Sam Darnold. (laughs) Neurovirus was bad enough. Hope he doesn't get coronavirus. By the way, you're going through that list. Uh, you forgot that the uh, right tackle Marcus Cannon on the Patriots has already done it. And as by the time people hear this podcast, there may be other NFL stars who are making this decision. Um, but some of these guys have, you know, from where I sit, very valid reasons. Uh, you know, Cannon is a cancer survivor. I believe he had a form of lymphoma. Uh, full recovered, but obviously this puts him in a higher risk category. Hightower's mother suffers from diabetes. Clearly, he's, he's about to become a dad soon. These guys... Are they likely to die from coronavirus? No. There are some people who are younger who are having lingering issues, though. And if you're a professional athlete, you know, lung capacity matters. Uh, any lingering issues, either neurologically or or you know respiratory or blood circuit or anything. Look, you need your body to be operating at peak performance. And I don't think it's coincidence this happens right after the Florida. Mar- I'm sorry, the Miami Marlins. <laughs> they're they're the Florida Marlins. I, I know. So, yes. Um. That, that you know after they had their breakout on their team uh which as of the last time i checked they thought may have been related to the charter flight that the team took now here's the thing we can we yesterday we made fun of the nba player who went to the strip club to get his chicken wings we're going to have games in different cities guys are going to have to travel they're going to have to get onto charter flights when you're on the flight there's just you're, you're going to be breathing the air the same air everybody else is you can try to wear a mask and try to be careful but one guy who's asymptomatic and contagious gets on those planes, you're going to have a bunch of these other guys get it. And again, most of these players will be fine. They'd certainly rather not be quarantined for, for 14 days. They're hoping to be asymptomatic. They may not be. And for a bunch of these guys, I think they're looking at this and saying, this may not be worth the risk. I'll sit out a year. Yeah, I hate losing a year of my prime playing years. But you know what? I, you know That means hopefully in 2021, I can jump back in and things are back to normal. So... Um, I am feeling a little less confident we're going to have an NFL season, but uh, if the Jets win by default, well, that'll be the that'll be the silver lining of all this.
1: Well, what's more likely? Does Bill Belichick get the guys who would have been stadium vendors to suit up and still find a way to win the division, or does Adam Gase, even if they're the only team that suits up, find a way to not win? I have this nagging feeling that
0: uh, Bill Belichick could take a bunch of you know unemployed peanut vendors from the stands. <laughs> Give him 22 of them and a punter and a kicker. He'll be fine. We're on to Cincinnati.
1: <laughs> Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please don't forget our great sponsor, the Bradley Foundation. Check out their Conceived in Liberty Bradley speaker series at bradleyfdn.org liberty. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. Give us a kind review and leave five stars, please. Also get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And join us Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.